Welcome to OA Light a Candle Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of, the, of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. It's my honor and privilege to introduce you to my brother here. We go back like ties and suits. <laughs> Matt S. Is my phone going to mess with the... Uh, so I can just look at the time on here? Is that going to mess with the... Thing? Uh, my name is Matt. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm Matt. I have 15 years of abstinence. I'm down 160 pounds from my top weight by the grace of this program. And, you know, I'm not a statue, so that's obviously a number that does fluctuate because it took me a long time to realize I'm also human and normal, and that's within the bounds of being in recovery. Um, I think what I... Uh, um, well, first of all, like, I've been here... I've lived in L.A. for 15 years. I've been, you know working this program for 15 years, so for anyone, <laughs> this podcast is definitely the soap opera of my life, because I've gotten to come in and share my experience over the years, so anyone who's listening online, am I close enough, you think? So anyone who's listening online, just look up Matt S. 100 Pounder, and you'll hear about every relationship I've been in, every job I hated, um, and then there'll be, there'll be people I've met in person who are like, how is your... Um, how, you know, you got married. How is your, how is that going? I'm like, I'm divorced. That was five years ago. So <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, uh, of that experience of just, you know, realizing that I get to come into this program and I get to live my life. This program isn't about I come in and I work the steps and then I'm living this magically principled spiritual life. If that is what I think is going to happen, then on some level, I'm still trying to control my experience. And I'm humbled every day to realize that I have to work these steps in all areas of my life. I have to work the traditions in all areas of my life. And um, I grew up in a... um, My dad was a minister. I grew up in the church where it lived back in Virginia in the South, and my dad was an alcoholic. So for me, um, words and actions uh, never really aligned. And I remember um, wanting to be around the kitchen table, or, you know, the kitchen table, and we would have dinner or whatever, like, why don't we, sit, why don't we say grace? And my dad was like, I don't want to say grace. I don't want to say grace. He's a minister. Like, he was so over it. Like, he hated it. Like, he, he hated church. He was a minister. It was, it, and, and his struggle with, with, his, um, with his alcoholism. And um, one thing that I got to see was what happens when you get sober, but you don't work a program. And when I came into OA 15 years ago, I was over 340 pounds. I had just moved out here to L.A. I was practically homeless. I was use, paying money for, um, for food rather than my hotel room that I, that I needed. And I started coming to these meetings. And I just connected the dots. Like, I'm an alcoholic with food. And I have a journal from high school that I still keep with me where I wrote in there pictures of myself 
uh, my senior year of high school where I had gone through periods of losing a lot of weight, uh, chewing and spitting food out and exercising compulsively, getting a girlfriend in high school, and then, you know, when I went to college, I gained it all back. Uh, but I, I remember telling myself and writing down that, like, I have an eating disorder. I have an eating, but I, I don't even remember writing it. And this was before binge eating disorder was in the DSM, before we had, you know, people were really acknowledging it the way that they do now. And, um, and I was a man. So it was really, I didn't know where to go. And I remember in college going to the doctor and he had suggested a outside, you know, a weight loss program. And he said, you know, you're, and he, cause he had lost a lot of weight through a, through one of those diet programs. And, uh, and he said, um, you know, you're morbidly obese and I literally walked out of the doctor's office and walked down to the 7-Eleven and binged. Because I also knew that I would not be able to do any diet that he suggested. I just knew. And I was like, I'm royally screwed. I was also told I cannot cuss on this. So this is like, I'm really going slow here because this is like hard for me. Um, so... I really, you guys know me, it takes me a minute to get going. Um, like I said, I've been working this program for 15 years, and I've been a compulsive overeater my whole life. I never picked up alcohol because my dad was the alcoholic, and I didn't want to be him. My mom was the codependent, Al-Anon. I didn't want to, you know... That's her thing. So I, my older brother was a drug addict, alcoholic. My younger brother was bipolar and struggled with, with alcoholism and drug addiction. And I was the one who was like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to escape. I'm going to run away. I remember sitting on my bed telling my mom. In the meantime, no one knew that I was chewing and spitting food out. I was struggling with my eating. I knew what to eat to um, focus. I knew what to eat to uh, completely... Uh, lose myself because one thing because I was a people pleaser for me as a compulsive overeater is that let me stuff my feelings let me stuff my feelings and I do believe in different fellowships there's some characteristics that just sort of make up the fellowships that's just me that's my judgment my inventory taking of all of us but that's me I think we tend to be people pleasers I know for me when I got abstinent I became the most angry dude in the rooms and I was known as the young angry guy who lost a lot of weight and he was angry um, or I was, you know, yeah, or being told I'm cute because I lost all this weight in the rooms. So you all can sit and work on that for yourselves. But that was a whole confusing thing, um, for me as a man. Um, I, uh, I judged my family a lot. I really hated my family a lot. And in my opinion, I felt like I had reason to. And to get into recovery and to realize I am the one that came in reading Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm reading the book because I'm a compulsive overeater. And I remember having conversations with my mom, you know, after I got into recovery. And it was hard. There were years that I didn't talk to my family. You know, they were 3,000 miles away. And I look back on it and I was thinking, well, they're just so crazy. Uh-uh. I did not have the capacity to not cause damage around them. 
because they're just going to be who they are and they have absolutely every right to be exactly who they are. And um, my mom said, um, when I was meeting with my mom at one point, you know, we were talking and she goes, you know, Matt, it was really painful to watch you. She goes, it was really painful to watch you struggle. And it just hit me that I am no different than any other addict and that I can cause pain and that as much as I'm a people pleaser, oh, poor me, I'm fat, everyone treats me badly. I was bullied relentlessly in school, which I think actually like caused me some really major PTSD that, that I really had to work through. I have damaged people. I've had to own up that I have also hurt people in my addiction. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to be uncomfortable. And I don't want to have to own up to my part in situations in which I've played a part. And I say all this because like, it is take, like I'm 15 years abstinent and I feel so new. I feel so new, guys. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm working in other areas of my life on some things that I've never really looked at. I, I'm, in a, I'm in a stable relationship, which I've never really been in before. And so that's really uncomfortable because it means something must be wrong, you know. And um, I'm learning how to work, my, work the principles on my relationship. And... Um, I think I had this idea coming in here of what it was that I was going to share, and I was like, I'm going to talk for 10 minutes about this, this my past, and whatever that is, and then I'm going to talk about, because I have an agenda, guys, you know, this is going all over the world, so like, I got some things to tell OA, you know, like, that's, that's how I, that's how I operate, and, um, when I stand up here right now, like, I just, I just am filled with so much gratitude for what this program has given me. And I am so grateful that I do get to live um, in the body I live in at a healthy body weight. And it's really difficult because we have so many outside influences telling us how we should think or feel about our body. Um, I believe I don't need to feel positive nor negative about my body. My body just is. And how I feel about my body is my barometer for where I'm at emotionally and spiritually. And where I'm at with myself. I've reached a point, I've, I did outside advocacy work for people with, um, for being a man with an eating disorder. I've argued with some of the largest organizations about how, how I was and was not allowed to share my story. But when I come into OA, I'm allowed to be exactly who I am. I'm allowed to say that I lost 160 pounds because you know what? There are people who need to hear that. And then those who are triggered by that, they can talk to their sponsor about it and do an inventory and figure out why it causes them issues. I don't have to be the one that worries all about that anymore. When I came in, this woman said to me in my first meeting, I just felt like I had to figure it out. I had to know how to do it all. That anxiety of like, I got it. I have to be the one. I have to be the one. And I grew up in that. Like, I got to be the one. I got to be the one that keeps my, you know, that keeps the image up, that, that I'll be the one that doesn't fail at life and, and all this stuff. And, and this woman says, she goes, Matt, you don't have to know how to do anything anymore. You get to be a baby. 
You don't have to know how to do everything anymore. And I remember in that moment, I just like, like, I just like released. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, that is what surrender was is. And um, there was the start of it. Surrender started with being able to finally just take a deep breath. That's really what it, where it started for me. And to be told that I got to be a baby, like, Matt, you're a newcomer, you're a baby. You don't have to know how to do this anymore. You don't have to know how to do everything anymore. I felt like I was an adult since the time I was, like, eight. I had a teacher in second grade tell me I was a warrior, and I went home in tears worried about me being a warrior. <laughs> like, really, really. And, um... <laughs> You know what? It's so funny. I, I led a meeting the other week or the other day, and I don't know what it was, but like in my share, I was just in this very like joyous place. So I was like, you know, everybody was laughing at what I was saying. And I was like, oh wow, usually I'm like so serious, but like I'm being funny, and people are laughing. And so I was like, I'm gonna come in here. I'm gonna try to find the right balance of humor and drama and craziness and all this and that. And you know what? I can't. I'm not even in control of that. I have been through some. I'm this one. I have been through some crazy shit in abstinence, and I thought when I came in and if I did the steps and I do what my sponsor tells me to do, that it'd get easy. It's not supposed to get easy. It's supposed to get real. And I think that's what I had to really come to realize. And I had a sponsor tell me, "He goes, Matt. So you think that because you've been a good boy, where's mine?" <sighs> I can still fall into that. And now, 15 years in, when I get triggered, I'm like, what trauma is this triggering? Like, I'm at least at that point, I'm like, oh, God, I know it has nothing to do with this person. What, what, is, what is going on with me? Because I'm just tired of blaming everyone else. Like, I got too many things to do. And if I'm focused on other people, then I'm just missing the point. So I just focus on telling my girlfriend what I think she should do. You know, we're around each other a lot, so I, I, I know what's best sometimes, and she needs to know about it. But, but the important thing is, recovery has given me a sense of humor about myself. It's given me that ability to have that kind of connection with my partner where we can joke about those character defects and just have it laid out. I had a sponsor tell me recently it's about moving from um, volatility to vulnerability. And I really believe that my compulsive eating is a symptom of my issues with intimacy. I believe it, I've struggled with porn addiction. Um, I've, tr- I've struggled with love addiction and codependency. And I believe that my eating disorder was all a symptom of that. You know, there, there was other things that happened to me growing up that, that were difficult, and I can just see how it all plays into, into my experience. Because when I got into recovery, I was, you know, and I lost all the weight. I was in a relationship, and I didn't know how to leave that relationship. And I was with this person for six years. We got married and divorced a year and a half later. Because you know what? The weight was gone, but I still had that cushion of a person. Because the world was just too scary. It was just too much. I just needed that cushion. I didn't have the weight anymore. Or 
I, you know, the wait was the was a really great excuse to not have to show up for my life. And then you know what? It's really easy to blame another person for me not having not being able to show up for my life. And um, that's something that I've had to work on and look at and own. Um, you know, the, I was told that we talk, I need to talk today about how the steps work in my life. The, the truth is, if you're listening to the podcast, you know you're supposed to get a sponsor, work the steps, and go to meetings and sponsor people and be of service. We all, like, know that. It's not that hard. What is hard is knowing that we have to learn to sit with ourselves, that we have to be willing to do the step work to create the space so that a higher power can come in. That's just all about vulnerability for me. That's just all about being able to sit with me. Um, so this is something I, I do want to talk about because I was at fellowship. I was at fellowship after a meeting last week. And, um, you know, I'm turning, I'm, I'm turning 39 at the end of the month. Oh, my God. I'm getting up there. Um, but I never thought I'd be 39 and so actively involved still in my recovery the way I am today. And it ebbs and flows. I mean, let me tell you, I was losing money doing service for OA. I was in world service, going to world service. And to be in my late 20s, early 30s, I finally had to stop doing a lot of service. I turned down speaking at this meeting several times simply because like, I needed to work. And there's a lot of more young people coming into the program now. And you know what? You get to find what works for you because it's like I've had to find this balance between old school recovery and 12-step principles and what the world is today and navigating that. And I think that's sort of what I wanted to share was like, that who do we go to when you come in at 21? When I came in 21 years ago, I was one of the only, it was just me and O'Ray and maybe a couple other guys, you know? There were other guys, but, like, we were the same age, and and um, there was so much experience, strength, and hope that I needed, and there was also so much that I had to figure out for myself. Because coming in at 21, I was learning how to balance my checkbook for the first time. I was learning how to do all these, like, normal things for the first time. And I'm trying not to compulsively overeat. I got so many um, parking tickets. I got Because I just couldn't do it. Like, I was literally like, I'm just trying to stay alive here. So, like, something's going to, like, not always, like, something's always off, you know? Because, like, I was just trying so hard not to compulsively overeat, like, those first five five years or, or whatever. But, um... I think it's important that we also acknowledge, like, the significance of us being a fellowship. Um, this is not a social club. I am not here for the social club. And um, I'm here to recover. I'm here to work the steps, and I'm here to be of service, and I have amazing friendships that I have developed in this program. And I had a sponsor one time say, uh, Matt, I can love this so much, so much that it can kill you. So when am I co-signing crap? because I just want you to be my friend, and when do I want you to recover? And um, and that's something that I've really had, you know, I used to think that, um, God, I'm just a loner, and I just don't, you know, oh, my joke is I just don't like people. Like, that's sort of like my thing, like my shtick. I don't, I don't like people, guys. Like, that's just, you know, my shtick. But you know what I've learned over time? I... 
I love people and I need people. And I just learn myself. I also enjoy my alone time. And I enjoy meaningful conversations with one or two people. Fellowship can be hard for me sometimes. When I go to fellowship, I end up talking to one person. That's that's what I do. And um I had this really awesome um, conversation at fellowship with a, a younger person in program, and um, I want to be able to share my experience in OA in regards to the fact that there are a lot of things going on in the world outside of our program that are really difficult, and we are all learning, you know. The 12th step is, you know, we practice these principles in all our affairs. So here we are, like, we do this work. We have this spiritual experience. And then, you know what? It feels like the world's just going to shit. So how do I practice these spiritual principles in this world where everyone's disagreeing and there's all of these outside issues? I'll tell you what helped me more than anything was service. You get on an intergroup board, man, you will learn principles before personalities. And um, it was just this beautiful experience of talking to this person about recovery and about their thoughts about the world and what they struggled with within the fellowship and things that they wanted to see changed and, you know, like even just down to wishing like it was gender neutral language and all of those things. And I said... I was like, I think that's awesome. I was like, go change it. Go change it. And she's like, yeah, but I'm like, no, go change it. You can change it. And I, I want to share with you guys, like, the most life-changing experience I had was getting to do world service. I went as a delegate, and then I ended up going for, like, four or five years, six, maybe six years. And I had a hard time letting go of it because... It took years to recognize that, like, by bringing my experience as a young person, I was actually making a difference, and people were listening to me. But also, I learned that it takes a lot of time for change to happen. And when you go to World Service, you're sitting there with, and I'm sure so many of the people at World Service might be listening to this, or they're like, oh, he's that guy. I know that. And, um... Because when I went, I was learning um, Robert's Rules of Orders, and I was learning just how the fellowship operates, and how, like, I am one part of an entire whole, but how it's also run by the fellowship. It's run by us. Sound familiar? We, people get nominated for positions, we vote them in. And I remember going the first year and seeing the board of trustees, and they're up kind of higher than everyone else, and they're all like, you know, and I was like, whoa, who are those people? And I was like, I want to be one of those people. Like, how ner- first of all, how nerdy is that? I, I wanted to be on the board of trustees of OA. Like, that, I, I was like, this is, I'm going to, I'm like, I, I, I was kind of embarrassed, but I was like, I was so nerded out and excited by all of that. 
because it showed me that there is a way to live. Like when we work the steps and we work these traditions and the concepts and we do this thing, like there is a way to deal with life abstinently. And here there were over 300 some people from all over the world making decisions together, having pros and cons and arguing and having differences and then voting on stuff and then going about their day. I was like, whoa, how do you, like, that boat just didn't go how you wanted. How are you now talking to the person who just conned your, like, what you just said? And they're like, well, it's a group conscience. It's a group conscience. And it took me years of going to that and, like, having, like, so much frustration around, like, just, like, oh, God, like, they're so old, you know, like having my own thoughts about things when we we're voting on social media and how do we do all that stuff and, and figuring out how does OA factor into that. And you know what? I just simply got to bring my experience. And like that was enough. And the thing is, is like, am I sitting here talking about the steps, telling you about my four steps, telling you about, you know what it is? You work the step work so you create the conditions so that you can go out there and have the life you want where God can be a part of it. And it took me years doing service to understand that, like, I'll be okay. And, and, and what, I, what I mean by that is, um, like, I love Overeaters Anonymous so much. I love it so much. And this program has absolutely changed my life. And... Uh, I don't consider myself to be a great sponsor. I, I just don't, not a, I don't get a lot of newcomers being like, I want that guy to sponsor me. Like, that just doesn't seem to happen for me. Um, but I find where, I, where service works for me. You know, maybe I'm the speaker getter for a meeting. Um, I love that service. Um, I've done treasure. I've done all that stuff. And world service was a place where I felt like I found myself in a way and I found my voice and I'm now learning how to take that out into the world and, and use that. It kept me abstinent. It kept me abstinent because my ego was so committed to it. Like, I was like, I, I, I can't go anywhere because I need to see what they're going to do with all this stuff. So I, I went, I became the chair of the young persons committee and first it was called Youth in OA. I put forth a motion that we change it from youth in OA because we can't help 10-year-olds. So it took, took motions and just to change it to young persons, trying to shift the fellowship to start thinking about anyone under 30 would be considered young in our fellowship. And I share all this because, again, we're learning how do we practice these principles in all of our affairs. And I thought things would change so much quicker and I learned sometimes they just don't. And it took me going to world service and talking to them every year and be like, hey, you know what? We're not youth. We're young people. We're young adults. If we want our fellowship to continue, we need to shift some of the things we're doing. I also learned that I'm not always right. And you know what? Privilege within our fellowship truly does exist and having to own that. And world service taught me about that. Because I'm talking to people from all over the world. And I remember 
they're always past making new literature. They're like always making new literature. And I was like, God, you guys are making so much literature. You guys are just dumbing down the message. Like that was my opinion. You guys are just dumbing down the message. And um, this woman pulled me aside and she lived in the Midwest. And she's like, Matt, there are like five people in my meeting every week, maybe 10. She's like, I'm the only one who's abstinent. I'm the only one who sponsors people. And she's like, I'm tired. And she goes, if I can pull a piece of literature out and we read it at a meeting, she goes, I need it. And I was like, God, like, I get it. I get it. It's not about me. It's not about me. And learning that there are so many ways that, that we carry the message and what that looks like. And so then I started voting for all the new literature that they wanted to make. Um, <laughs> I also, um, you know, I wanted to do world service. You know, I wanted to be on the board of trustees. And I was, there was one year where they were all like, you really should do this. Like, you should do this. And I was like, they have to fly there to Albuquerque. And, you know, it it was a lot of time that it was really only workable if you were retired, honestly. And... And I remember telling them, I'm like, you can't, and we had the unity with diversity pamphlet that we had voted in a couple years ago. And I was like, the way you guys are choosing to run this organization right now are not going to allow you to have a diverse group of people on that board of trustees. And um, so you know what I did? I put in an emergency business motion that year um, because it didn't even go to the floor on the conference. I just put an emergency business motion. So I made this committee all come in for this emergency business meeting. And my motion was that they needed to start going online and doing some of their board meetings online because they were spending so much money bringing the fellowship, bringing the, bringing the board of trustees to Albuquerque. And in my head, this was an emergency. I was like, this is money that could be going to the newcomer. It, it wasn't the right time for it. So it didn't go to the floor or anything like that. I did my thing. I was, you know, I, I, I needed to do all that. I needed to do all that. And you know what happened? The pandemic hit. Meetings went online. And you know what? OA's fellowship has grown tremendously. I believe the Board of Trustees has some meetings now that are online. We get to come here and be messy And one thing was I've been so scared to take so many risks in my life because I don't want to be messy. And I've spent so much of my life so scared of, like, not looking a certain way. And I realized, like, I'll eat over that. I will eventually eat over that. And you know what? Things went online. God's time, not my time. But that also told me, like, oh, you know what, God? Maybe I have some good ideas. There was another thing. I guess I'm just airing all my dirty laundry. But you know why I'm sharing this is because we are a fellowship and we all have a place. And if we get to do this in the fellowship, what do we get to do out in the fucking... <laughs> Sorry. What do we get to do out in the world? Um... We had no books on body image relationships and sexuality. Nothing. OA had been around for how many years? The Young Persons Committee wanted a book on it. 
And so they put in a proposal. It took us six years, but we got it. I wanted it the first year. Our committee wanted it the first year. I had people tell me, but Matt, what if it triggers people? I'm like, yeah, they don't have to read it. And it just taught me, you know what? It takes time. And to find compassion in wanting to make a change. Thank you. And then, like, when when that book came out, and I've, I've heard, like, from all over the world, like, people are using that book in meetings, and, like, um, it just taught me that, like, God's timing is so much better than what I think it is. Um, <laughs> I wrote this long letter to the board of trustees because uh, they, there's board-approved literature that they can write their own literature, and as long as it's not, like, in a book for... Anyway, there's, there's ways in which they're able to write literature throughout the year without it needing to be approved by everyone. And they put out this little pamphlet called The Strong Abstinence Checklist. I lost it. I lost it. I was there. At the, I was like, what do you mean strong abstinence? I was like, there is no such thing as strong abstinence. You're either abstinent or you're not. If you want to be accurate within your definition of abstinence, saying strong abstinence does not make any sense. And I was like, why did, I was like, how did the entire board decide this was okay? And they're like, well, and I was like, you guys should really retract this and change it. It should be strong recovery checklist. I wrote them a letter. I got a letter back. They didn't change it. And you know what? It's okay, because you know what? I know every one of them. I love them so much, and it's obviously changed over the years now. I love them all so much. They are they have so much recovery. And you know what? Maybe five years from now, I'm going to go back to world service, and I'm going to put in a motion, I'm going to change it. Because that's what we get to do. We get to be a part of. I don't know why I felt the need to share all of that. Um, you know what? Because it's not people in the rooms that are going to make me want to eat again. It's the real world. And so how do I navigate the real world and maintain my integrity and my principles? And you know what? It's really important how we choose to trans how we choose to interpret the traditions and how we choose to interpret the concepts and making sure that we are checking in with each other and that we're not uh, um, that I'm not I'm not um, interpreting it in such a way to fit my own best interests and I've really had to learn how even in my life I've done that man it's so easy to manipulate people give me some slogans you know, like, uh, don't take my inventory. Like, don't take, the, people tell you, like, don't, I'll, I'll use that. Someone will be vulnerably telling me, like, how I hurt their feelings. I'll be like, well, don't take my inventory. <laughs> it's like, no, I hurt their feelings. Like, they're trying to tell me I did something to them. Like, there's times just to be like, oh, okay, it is what it is. Be messy. Stay abstinent and be messy. And work the steps. And I always share a lot of dramatic stuff, but you know what? We've all been through a lot of dramatic stuff. My brother killed himself six years ago, and I'm abstinent. 
The day I found out, I went and met with my sponsee. My sponsor says, what were you going to do today? I said, well, I have a meeting with my sponsee, and I was going to go to a meeting. He goes, so that's what you do. And I went to a meeting that day. Um, I had a sponsee um, who I had just stopped working with kill himself. Because we're not all here just because we're compulsive overeaters. We're sick people. And I've learned how I've learned how much I have to have compassion um, for others, and it's taken me a really long time to learn how to have compassion for myself. Um, I guess I'll, we got five minutes. I love questions and stuff like that, so um, I'm gonna just end there. Uh, if I said something that I probably said something that offended somebody somewhere. Um, um, just watch my earlier podcasts. They're, they're a little... No, nah, I'm probably offensive in those ones. <laughs> so, anyways, thank you for letting me share. Do I, do I pick the people? Okay. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, could you talk more about, um, like, how do you... Uh, when you talked about um, having to find what's right for you and um, taking different risks, like, um, what are some of the things that you do that help you know, like, okay, what risks are worth taking, like, what's God's will versus um, what's self-will, um, what are the right priorities to prioritize, that kind of thing? Um, the question was, how do I, how do I, what, what do I do to know if I'm doing the right thing for myself, making the right decisions? God's will versus my will. At the end of the day, the whole program starts with honesty. Honesty. I have made a decision to be honest about every single thing in my life. And so when I call someone up and I'm like, oh, there's this thing I want to do. Oh, okay, yeah, Matt, go do that. You know, like, maybe not. And I check those things in with my sponsor. Just like, however, whatever I have to do with the food... I translate that, and I do that with every other area of my life. Sometimes God's will is that it's messy and that I make mistakes. And sometimes God's will is that I think it's God's will, but it's not. Because at the end of the day, it's all God's will. I know that God wants me to be happy, joyous, and free, and I believe in a higher power that will use any and all things that happen to me for my benefit. I do. I have to look at it that way. I have to. Okay. Um, how do you use the 12 traditions in your relationship? Um, so there, this isn't the traditions, but somebody said something that I think it really, re- it actually really relates. Um, I was talking one day, I was like, oh, you know, relationships are about compromise. I'm like, no, it's not about compromise, it's about collaboration. And I think for me, that's what the, the 12 traditions are really about. It's about how do we work together in a way so that we function, so that everyone is taken care of. Um, And, um, like, I think it's also, like, for me, too, a relationship is messy. I think that's the thing about vulnerability and intimacy that we miss is that we think it's meant to be beautiful, and it's not. I think it's meant to be very messy. And for me, in my relationship, learning how to work the traditions in my relationship is a journey. It's not a set of rules. And, like, it's about it's about overstepping those boundaries with each other and then, like, reeling it in. 
and then having a conversation about it and being like, what, how does that, what does that tradition look like for us in our life and in our relationship? Oh, and the question was, how do I work the, the traditions in my relationship? Thank you. Um, how has your relationship with your family changed? So uh, the question was, how has my relationship with my family changed? Um, you know, it's so funny. I had an interesting thing the other week where I called home. My mom was telling me all these things that were happening, and I was I, it kind of messed me up. And my sponsor says, well, if you can't take in the information, don't call them. Um, I love my family to death, and I have a good relationship with them today. And the work I do is about allowing them to be exactly who they are. And honestly, like, talking about God's will, like, losing my brother is the one thing that taught me that we are all, we all, I have to give everyone the dignity of their own experience. And that was his decision, and it had nothing to do with me. And, um, you know, I struggle with my dad and, you know, my relate, how deep I wish I could go with my family. But when I meet them where they're at, they're pretty cool. My job is to focus on being myself when I'm around them. Because if I'm not being myself, then I'm wanting them to fit into my mold. And that's not fair to them. But when I'm really myself, it actually, like, loosens them up. Because I'm just, like, relaxed. Okay. Uh, any other questions? If someone wants to get involved in world service, what's the path for that? So if, you're, if you want to do world service, um, so... Every intergroup has, you know, their own board, and one of those positions is, uh, uh, like, delegate. Um, so if you're in a smaller intergroup that doesn't have um, funds to send you to World Service, I know they're doing a lot of it online, and now they're doing it hybrid, and they also have, like, delegate support funds so that you can par- – so that smaller intergroups can participate. Um but if I remember, I, be, I, I joined the board, the intergroup board, and then from there they needed a representative who would be the delegate to go to world service and represent us in the votes from our intergroup, and then that's how I went. And then from there, you get broken down into a committee, and then you join committees, and that's sort of how it works. Okay, 620, that's it? Okay. Thank you. Be saying you want to go ahead and stop this? It's now time for our 